Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organisation defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There's more information on our website, womensdeclaration.com, where you'll find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 37,186 people from 160 countries and is supported by 518 organisations from all over the world. We have many volunteer activists, including country contacts on every continent, engaged in defending women's rights. Do join us. You can become a member or a volunteer, or donate, or all of those things. I want to remind you about the WDI book, Women's Rights, Gender Wrongs, The Global Impact of Gender Identity Ideology. If you haven't seen it yet, it's an amazing collection of writing by WDI members around the world with contributions from 38 different countries and on all five continents. We've been hearing some of them at FQT, Feminist Question Time, over the last few weeks, and Soon, Carolyn Cost will be here to talk about her chapter, Women's Studies to Gender Studies. Some women have asked about buying multiple copies, either to sell or give to politicians, local libraries, etc. If you're interested in doing something similar or that, um, we can let you have them at a discount. So send an email to wdisurvey2022 at gmail. Com. You can also get them from the resources page on the website and there's going to be a digital version of the book and we'll let you know as soon as possible when it's available. Meanwhile, the print version will make a brilliant seasonal present if you're looking for one and it should be available to order from any bookseller. So today I'm really pleased to say that we have a panel discussion femininity as a gender identity. And the panel today is going to be Sheila Jeffries, who's going to, the title of her contribution will be Gender as Dominance and Submission. And then we have Irene Lawrence, Nonviolent Direct Action as Anti-Femininity. And then Marion Rutigliano, Aspects of Femininity. And we'll all, we'll all talk, um, for 10 minutes or so, and then we'll get together, all four of us, and have a discussion. Without further ado, I'm going to introduce our first speaker on this topic. It's Sheila Jeffries. Sheila Jeffries writes in the area of sexual politics, international gender politics, and lesbian and gay politics. She's written 18 books on history of politics and sexuality. Originally from the UK, Sheila moved to Melbourne in 1991 to take up a position in the University of Melbourne. She retired back to the UK in 2015 and has been actively involved in feminist and lesbian feminist politics, particularly around the issue of sexual violence since 1973. She's a director of Women's Declaration International and co-author of the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights. She is the author of Beauty and Misogyny, which is one of the very relevant books for the topic that we're discussing today. So thank you so much, Sheila. And your talk is called Gender as Dominance and Submission. So over to you. Hello, everybody. Hello, sisters. So I'm going to argue today that as femininity is the behaviour of subordination, masculinity is the behaviour of male do domination. 
Now, women as the subordinate sex class are trained into femininity, and then, of course, they are told that it is natural, and many people believe that it's natural. However, an increasing number of men, encouraged by pornography, now find this behavior of subordination sexually exciting because they are masochists. And to justify their sexual perversion, they proclaim that they have something called a gender identity that in entitles them to pretend to be women in law and society. And the fact that men actually do imitate this behavior and train themselves into it is quite a good indication that actually the behavior is a construction. Now, if we're going to combat the male behavior of um, gender identity politics, which threatens women's very existence in law and threatens our recognition as a category of persons, then femininity has to be challenged in its entirety. After all, men cannot imitate femininity if this behavior of the subordinate class doesn't exist. The vicious and insulting bit, adoption of woman-hating stereotypes by men for their entertainment in the form of gender identity or drag is increasingly rejected and excoriated by feminists, which is great, and many other people too. But the adoption of these stereotypes by many feminists themselves is generally not questioned. Indeed, the, um, the questioning can be seen as rude and unsisterly. If you make a political critique of femininity, for instance, often you're seen as unsisterly towards other women. Now, the feminism of the women's liberation movement in the 1970s, in which I was involved, started with the rejection of what were called sex role stereotypes, with protests against the Miss World contest, for instance. Many thousands of women in the UK, and I was one of them, gleefully threw off the constrictions of sex role stereotypes in our appearance. We stopped depilating, stopped wearing makeup. We wore only comfortable shoes. We stopped in many cases wearing short skirts and showing naked parts of our bodies. We cut our long hair. We came bold and bare-faced. We did it in huge numbers and with the support of our sisters. And it helped that the fashion of the time was unisex. Extremely gendered appearance was less dominated at that time than it is now. But that movement to throw off femininity is nowhere to be seen now. Women who are drawn into feminism by the crisis of men's aggressive gender identity activism and the threat to women have no knowledge of the critique of femininity and do not, in many cases, see the rejection of gender identity as having anything to do with them personally. Many feminists see femininity as something harmless. They may see the problem as being only when it's extreme or when it's adopted by men, not by women. In fact, as I will explain, femininity is not just an inconvenient imposition upon women, but the behavior of subordination that girls and women are trained into by cultural imposition, by force and through sanctions. It's not harmless, 
and it affects women's ability to respect themselves and other women and stand up for their rights and dignity as human beings. It shapes everything that women are able to do and be in their lives. Femininity and masculinity represent the behaviors of two classes of people under male domination. It's about politics and hierarchy, not choice and fun. Neither femininity nor masculinity would survive if women were free. The hierarchy of gender or sex role stereotyping is under male domination eroticized to form what is understood as sex and to a large extent what is understood as culture. The simplest way to understand that gender is about power is to consider the body language expectations of girls and boys, women and men. How we use our bodies is supposed to conform to our position in a hierarchy. Boys and men, for instance, take up more space and have more freedom of movement as befits dominance. Girls and women occupy very little space and are restricted in movement as befits subordinates. This pattern is repeated in the relations of other groups of people in a power hierarchy, such as servants and their masters or mistresses, workers and their bosses, slaves and their owners. The areas occupied by servants and workers are restricted, whereas the masters and bosses have spacious offices and areas of the house to be in. Feminist social geographers have shown that these rules of hierarchy extend to women's and men's spaces in the home. Men may have their special armchairs. They may have offices or sheds that only they may enter. Women do not generally have their own spaces where children have to knock on the door, for instance. Presently, we are not allowed to have our own spaces outside the home either. Men riot at the very idea of it. Now, the rules about space extend to how men and women are expected to walk and sit and hold themselves. Boys and men are expected to take up space, as feminists, for instance, have noticed in relation to the practice of man spreading, in which men take up space on public transport. In the home as well as out of it, men may sprawl, spreading legs and arms along chair backs so that the envelope they inhabit is large. Women, on the other hand, are expected to keep knees together and arms by their sides. In fact, sprawling, especially with the leg thrown over the back of the sofa, is out. It would be impossible anyway in the subordinate clothing assigned to women. If women spread and throw their legs about in the feminine clothing of skirts, their underwear is revealed. Little girls are trained to, con to conceal their knickers and be feminine by instructions to keep their knees together and keep pulling their skirts down. In skirts, they cannot easily bend over to pick up something in the classroom without boys sexualizing and harassing them. Femininity restricts women's and girls' movement and their use of space. The appearance norms imposed upon women represent not just women's subordinate position, but women's purpose, i.e. sexually arousing their masters. Femininity is eroticized to be the basic mechanism of sex under male domination. I understand the appearance norms of femininity as the rules of the harem, 
in which the women, whose job is to sexually service men, must make themselves sexually attractive at all times, in case the Lord and Master comes to find himself someone to sexually use for the night. Men, of course, do not have to do this. Now, subordination in appearance involves nakedness, and nakedness in women excites their masters. So women should show naked and shaved and preferably shiny legs, arms, armpits, cleavage, shoulders and backs, sometimes butt cracks or toe cleavage, and being clothed, especially when others are naked, such as in a strip club, for instance, signifies power. This is shown in clothing, such as T-shirts and shorts. Men's upper garments are likely to have sleeves, whereas women show naked arms, chests and shoulders. Men's shorts will always be longer, even to the knee, whereas women's shorts will very generally show bits of their buttocks. Men's clothes can be loose, whereas women's must be tight, showing the outlines of women's bodies so men can get sexually excited. Femininity involves the sexual display of women's bodies. Masculinity does not have this imposition upon men. Femininity requires that women engage in degrading rituals of depilation, makeup, perfuming, to ensure their sexual desirability to the dominant male sex class. Women are expected to, to wear impossibly high-heeled winkle picker shoes that make walking extremely difficult because, because such disability is attractive to men. Women are supposed to wobble and not have two feet on the ground. Women are hobbled and restricted. This is the cultural ideal of femininity and revealed in the fact that female newsreaders on all TV channels wear these fetish shoes so that it's impossible to watch the news without engaging in the degradation of a woman watching a kind of pornography. So the only alternative really is to close your eyes and simply listen to the news if you don't want to have to join in with this performance. Now, women with significant roles in public life are expected to wear the crippling footwear. Heaven forbid that women should expect to, be to have important and influential roles without demonstrating their deference to the males into whose realm they have strayed. This goes for most women politicians, for instance, for women musicians in orchestra, for women footballers as soon as they leave the field. They must be deferential and show that they know their place, crippled, showing naked parts of the body, depilated and made up. Now, all of the behavior that I've been describing constitutes what's seen as natural femininity. It is not natural but de demonstrates deference and sexualized subordinate status. It is imposed and girls are trained to it. Girls and women who do not do it are punished. Lesbians are hated by men because we mostly refuse all the behaviors of subordination and have the cheek to usurp the freedoms of men instead of being sexy for them. It is this behavior of subordination that forms the basis of men's sexual practice of transvestism or gender identity. The men who pretend to be women, the men who claim to have a female gender identity, adopt the appearance norms and behaviors of femininity 
because they're sexually excited by masochism. They know, in a way that most women seem not to, that femininity is the behavior of subordination. All of this is really clear in their writings and in their pornography. If the behaviors of subordination that constitute femininity were abandoned by women, gender identity politics and practice could no longer exist. It would not, for instance, be exciting for men to pretend to be women wearing t-shirts and jeans and short hair, because that's not about masochism, it's not about subordination. They wouldn't want to do that. So in fact, these men actually sort of perform for women and train women in the behavior that, of femininity. It's an important question then, why there's so little criticism of femininity in general in what are called gender critical feminist politics. If we want to eliminate the idea of gender identity for men, then we have to do the same for women. Even if men were not doing their insulting impersonations of women, we would need to get rid of femininity because it ensures and represents women's subordination. If we want girls to grow up with an idea of freedom, we should not be modeling sexual slavery through clothing and scrippling shoes. Femininity creates what Mary Daly calls mind bindings, as well as bindings for the body. Thank you. We'll go on to our next speaker, who is Irene Lawrence. And Irene Lawrence is serves as a board member for WDI USA, as well as the program coordinator for WDI USA's Nonviolent Direct Actions. She has a Master of Public Policy from Duke University. In her day job, she works in state government and advocates for the formerly incarcerated population. Because of her background in justice reform, her biggest concern is for the rights of incarcerated women. And Irene's talk is called NVDA, that's Nonviolent Direct Action, as anti-femininity. Thank you so much, Irene, and over to you. The WDI USA board recently wrote a blog post, which I just shared in the chat, titled On Femininity and the Abolition of Gender. The blog post sought to examine femininity as gender from a radical feminist perspective, explain how and why it is enforced upon women and girls and how it harms us, explain why gender identity is, is merely one form of gender, and invited women to explore how we can resist compliance with gender. We then hosted a panel discussion for all US signatories on this topic. After each board member shared her thoughts and reactions to the piece, we had a lively discussion on how to identify our participation in femininity and how to resist compliance with it. One of the most useful questions that came out of this discussion was, what could strength and power look like for women? To explore this question, I wanted to examine how a core expectation of femininity is that we should enjoy the pain men inflict on us and how nonviolent direct actions or NVDAs are most effective when they flip this expectation on its head. Making Trantifa violence visible entails not just enduring their abuse, but broadcasting it everywhere. During WDI USA's nonviolent direct action trainings, after we explain the risks, women often ask whether putting ourselves in a position where we are likely to get yelled at or attacked is actually doubling down on stereotypes of femininity, namely that women are fragile and vulnerable, 
and thereby losing us support rather than gaining it? How can we learn to see ourselves and how can we actually become powerful people with full agency when we are intentionally going into circumstances where we will not come out unscathed? When NVDA is most successful, we do not look strong, at least not in the moment. And even some who understand the strategy when it's practiced by men look at women who attempt it with patronizing contempt. These responses to women participating in NVDA have led me to reflect on how NVDA can be one of the most public manifestations of an alternative form of strength and power for women that doesn't waste energy hiding our pain, but redirects that energy in a disciplined way towards a future that is centered on women's loyalty and our love for each other. You could say that we're not so much making violence visible as we are refusing to continue hiding it. What is the opposite of femininity at NVDA events? How can we convey strength and power to those watching? As WGI USA's blog post states, public dig dignity is precisely what women are denied in patriarchy and one of the things we are fighting for. How can we both insist on and embody such dignity when we're being physically attacked? First, the vulnerability we face in these situations comes from being female, not from being feminine. We're showing our solidarity and love for each other and allowing each other's vulnerability without seeking male protection. Being motivated by love for each other and for all women is subversive and it's also more sustainable than anger. We participate in these actions to protect what we love more than to fight what we hate. Second, we're not trying to make it look easy to stand up for our rights. We may be truly scared or actually hurt in NBDA actions, and we're not trying to cover up our anger at the facts we're sharing or our fear of the repercussions. We may be taking emotional or physical abuse in these situations, but we are denying its legitimacy. Third, we're determined to give ourselves a platform and be heard by pushing our arguments into the media narrative. Although some men may help us amplify the message, we're mainly calling on our sisters to both participate in these actions and to help get the word out. Amplifying each other's voices for our collective benefit as women is a distinctly unfeminine show of strength. Finally, finding strength and power to stand firm during these actions comes from standing together on behalf of all women and girls, not to get individual praise or recognition. These goals of NVDA all convey power and agency, not submission, no matter how badly we are attacked. Our recent NVDA action in Portland, Oregon on November 19th was by far our most violent action to date. After being informed that the library where we had planned to give the action was not going to be able to keep us safe, we stood outside with our banner and started to give our speeches, which were all about violence against women. We got halfway through the first speech when we got pepper sprayed, punched, kicked, and had heavy cans thrown at us. We eventually made it to our getaway car and back to the rental house, but several women had to go to the hospital for their injuries. All 10 of us were traumatized and in pain as a result of this experience, but not a single woman broke her nonviolent discipline. And every woman who I talked to said that she was not only likely, but eager to participate in another action. Ultimately, it doesn't matter if any individual woman doesn't feel like her own strength is enough in these actions. We absorb strength from each other. I don't think we need to split hairs over how many 
NVDA photos of us are published where we look upset versus how many photos portray us appearing calm. As long as we have sufficient dedication to our mission to keep us from fighting back at the violent men, our power and determination is made clear to those watching and more people will peak trans. As the only heterosexual woman on this panel, I also wanted to reflect on how my understanding of femininity and its non-gendered opposites of strength and power has been affected by my relationships with men. Making my goals, intellect, and self-worth smaller has been a key feature of all the relationships with men that I've been in. And when I've been in relationships, I felt a great deal of pressure to prioritize their needs above those of my friends and family. With the benefits of hindsight and radical feminist analysis, I'd like to think I would never allow this in my future relationships. But since becoming a TERF, I've also started to consider my dating prospects almost zero, which shows how hostile I assume most men to be towards women who display uncompromising solidarity with other women. My assumption that there are now very few men who I would consider as partners, as partners is further strengthened by my experiences since becoming a radical feminist. I started dating my ex-boyfriend before I found radical feminism. His porn use already made him determined to violate all my boundaries, and he became distinctly more sexually violent in response to my adopting radical feminism. Radical feminism, thankfully, also gave me the courage to leave that relationship. Broadly speaking, it's no coincidence that male partners' violence frequently emerges in response to women's newfound professional success or personal strength. We are only seen as properly feminine if our relationship with him is the primary one. I think straight radical feminists need to spend the majority of our time, intellect, empathy, and political analysis on our female relationships and what benefits women and girls as a class, regardless of our relationship status as it relates to men. I don't think we should settle for any man who can't accept that prioritization. If enough straight women held men to those standards and displayed a willingness to put their safety at risk on behalf of all women, we would have a chance of undermining patriarchy. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to reflect on femininity and how radical feminists might better resist it. So we're now going to go to Marion Rituliano. She's a biological scientist evaluating research on the effects of toxic chemicals on people and has been a radical feminist since radical feminism was created. And she's title of Marion's talk is Aspects of Femininity. Over to you, Marion. Radical feminism is a material analysis grounded in reality. And one of the core concepts is, is that we see that beliefs and behavior are differentially instilled in males and females. This happens by a societal sleight of hand that conflates the sex you were born as with behavioral expectations and associated beliefs for the rest of your life. We used to call these sexual stereotypes, which um, in some ways is more descriptive. Um, and I kind of like better than gender, but that's what, um, you know, sexual stereotypes has come, come to be called gender. And, you know, if you're born male, you are told to succeed and dominate in all areas of your life. And you're told that men have courage, physical bravery, honor, control, control their emotions. They never cry. They, you know, they don't nurture others. They make decisions strictly based on logic. They take charge of things. They do whatever it takes to get what they want. And male newborns get little blue hats in the hospital nursery um, on top of all that. If you're born female, besides the little pink hat in the hospital nursery, your choices in life are constrained um, to some degree, depending upon where in the world you're born and your personal circumstances, your family, your religion, and so forth. 
And you will be told that women must be constantly afraid or wary, which has some basis in um, the way we find ourselves, except that they don't tell you that the fear and the wariness is strictly because there are men in the world. Um, that you are, you're also told that you should always put others first, um, that it's okay, that it's okay to cry. In fact, you'll be told that you can't control your emotions and this will make you unfit for certain jobs and roles in society because you'll make decisions based on emotions. You'll be told that you need men to protect you. And again, they won't tell you that you need protection from other men. And you, you're, you'll be told that you will find your greatest fulfillment as a wife to a man and a mother, um, and that you will instinctively be nurturing and empathetic. How does all this get apportioned out so thoroughly based only on the sex of a newborn, long before there's any inkling of a child's personality, talents, and interests? There's no credible evidence that any of these things are innate or fixed at birth, and I make a living um, evaluating the validity of research studies. So if somebody has a study that, you know, or, or a body of work um, of studies that can show me how this is innate, uh, please, I'll, I'll take a look at it. Um, so, you know, the only thing fixed at birth is your, is your sex. Yet boys grow up um, with one set of expectations in which women provide sexual services and emotional labor. And girls grow up with another set of expectations in which they will defer to the desires of men. And notice, it's men who get their desires met. It's almost as though that conflation of sex and the roles that each sex is expected to fit into is deliberate. But how can, it, how can an entire class of people, women, be convinced that they should adopt an extensive set of behaviors that provide them no intrinsic benefits and often are harmful? High heels. They damage the feet. They cause chronic back pain. They restrict movement and walking. Um, but men like that because it it sexualizes the body. You're on high heels. It pushes out the, you know, it pushes out your rear. Um, it causes you to, you know, to um, wobble when you walk. I mean, and men love that because it's sexualized. Makeup, your effects on the skin, acne, premature aging, dry skin, and all that. Not really critical, but, um, you know, men men like that. It hyperfeminizes appearance. Um, dresses and skirts, Sheila made reference to this. Maybe it's okay in a blistering hot summer day in private or at home. Otherwise, you can't always sit comfortably. It restricts movement. But men like that for a glimpse of what may be underneath. Shaving, legs and armpits. You know, it. it if you're completely hairless, that's like a, being a baby. I mean, it's pretty pedophilic. Um, and the behaviors mentioned that you're taught. Um, smiling. I mean, you smile. And you're you're sweet, even when you don't feel like smiling. Um, you have to be, you know, deferential um, and not take charge, even when you're the most qualified. Um, but if you have to take charge, you have to make sure men feel like they're more important than they are to whatever it is. So women, women will say with all this, like, I, I have agency. I can choose. I choose for me. No one tells me what to do. Decisions are not made in a vacuum, never made in a vacuum. Every woman makes decisions in the context of being a woman in the class of women, all of us. Radical feminists have recognized this, and it, it's painful to acknowledge, and most women don't even see it. Um, Marilyn Fry wrote many years ago that cons consider a birdcage. You know, if you think you have total freedom, consider a birdcage. If you look very closely at just one wire in the cage, you cannot see the other wires. If your conception of what is before you is determined by this myopic focus, 
you could look at that one wire up and down the length of it and be unable to see why a bird would not just fly around the wire anytime it wanted to go somewhere. Furthermore, even if one day at a time you myopically inspected each wire, you still could not see why a bird would have trouble going past the wires to get anywhere. There is no physical property of any one wire, nothing that the closest scrutiny could discover that will reveal how a bird could be inhibited or harmed by it, except in the most accidental way. It is only when you step back, stop looking at the wires one by one microscopically, and take a macroscopic view of the whole cage that you can see why the bird does not go anywhere. And then you will see it in a moment. It will require no great subtlety of mental powers. It is perfectly obvious that the bird is surrounded by a network of systematically related barriers, no one of which would be the least hindrance to its flight, but which by their relations to each other are as confining as the solid walls of a dungeon. It's now possible to grasp one of the reasons why oppression can be hard to see and recognize. One can study the elements of an oppressive structure with great care and some good will without seeing the structure as a whole, um, and hence without, without seeing or being able to understand that one is looking at a cage and that there are people there who are caged, whose motion and mobility are restricted, whose lives are shaped and reduced. Um, pretty good stuff. So when you're told all these things, all these things that, you know, you're born a girl and you're, you're told all these things that you have to be and that you have to do, um, this is this is where it gets personal. Who told you all those things? And you don't have to tell me now. The only person who has to think know about this is you. Who told you all these things? Where and when do you first remember hearing that you should do all this stuff? Think about it. Not just now, but but think about it afterwards. At where and from whom did you first get the idea that providing men with sexual services and emotional labor is something that you should do or should want to do? And why? Ask, ask why. Um, some women may remember right away. Some women may not remember at all. Um, but think about it. Think more. And what happens if you choose not to do these things at all? We're not born wanting to fit into female sexual stereotypes. Where did it come from? And um, there was reference in the chat to, uh, you know, during the pandemic, <laughs> makeup sales fall off to the mental experiment of like you're on a desert island, you know, for the rest of your life and you've got you've got makeup and and uh, and razors to shave with. It's like, are you going to do any of that stuff? If it's just for you, are you going to do any of that stuff? What negative things happen if you don't comply? And is that right? Irene made reference to that. It's like, what, what happens? Um, what happens if you don't do any of this stuff? Now, we're not talking about women who have no choice. Um, Hooters puts women in very hypersexualized uniforms for the male gaze. But, you know, if that's the only job or the best paying job available, then a woman wears the uniform. Same with pleasing clients in a sales job. And But we change this for individual women who have no choice by fighting for all women. Um, we do not leave our people behind and our people are women. So all those things, courage, bravery, honor, control of emotions, being cool and aloof, logical, um, you know, self-sacrificing, empathetic, emotional, accommodating, nurturing, um, those are neither masculine, feminine, male, nor female um, characteristics. None of them are inherently feminine or masculine. Um, and we do not want to widen the definitions of what feminine or masculine are. We want to get rid of them because any woman can be any one of those things um, depending upon the circumstances. 
So rejecting femininity is not refusing masculinity nor taking refuge in masculinity. I mean, if you're going to participate in NVDA, that takes courage and physical bravery. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't, to do that doesn't mean you stop being a woman. If you want to have kids, if you want to be in a leadership role, you have to be nurturing. I mean, you know, your kids through life stages to make a good person. You're a leader. You want to recognize what motivates people, bring out their best. That's nurturing. And you don't do that because you're a woman. You do that because that's what's appropriate to the situation. So um, women go through, um, you know, go through um, a lot to get to the point where they, there is no, um, this makes me masculine, this makes me feminine. Um, there are one of the best, um, um, you know, uh, illustrations of it is women who come from hyper-religious backgrounds. Um, I like Sonia Johnson's book, um, From Housewife to Heritage. She, she was Mormon, which is an extremely patriarchal religion. And if if it helps you to read a personal story, um, that's a really good one about how one woman um, came out of what we call femininity and acting all these things, the smiling, the personal stuff. Um, so, you know, and trans, the whole trans thing and the whole gender ideology thing, um, all, it, all it's doing is taking what we've, we view as traditional femininity and, you know, versus masculinity um, and, and making it um, a system that is uh, um, the way that a lot of men get, get off. Um, so that's uh, truly all I have to say. A question about how does Bush and Femme roles in lesbian relationships fit into this whole discussion? I do think that's quite a large issue to talk about at this point. So I think I do need to talk about it on FQT, and we'll do that in the future, except to say that I, obviously I think Butch and Femme are gender identities. So I think if lesbians do either one of those things, they're doing a gender identity. And they are constructed and they are problematic, as heterosexual sex role stereotypes are as well. So, no, I don't think I don't think they're defensible. That would be my position. And certainly they were completely rejected in the lesbian feminism of the 1970s here and in the States from about 1970 onwards. Women who've been lesbians most of their lives, writing books and becoming feminists, totally rejected those roles. Um, but again, with roles in as with roles in heterosexuality, they if the critique seems to have gone. Anyway, I'm happy to make that critique and draw all of these things together in the future, and I'd be delighted to do so. I've written quite a bit about it already, so if anybody wants to read Trigger Warning, my autobiography, and, and I think probably Unpacking Queer Politics and so on, there's a lot out there by me on Butch and Femme already. It's very good if we be a role model and we are... a anti-gender like we we do not perform femininity because then it's a crucial time at the moment that if there are young girls who are rejecting the gender stereotypes the sex role stereotypes the forced um femininity and there's nowhere to go they feel like there's no option unless we show that there is an option that you can do drug-free rejection of gender you can be outside these gender stereotypes 
completely without having to take any drugs. I think it's a really powerful message. And I think that those role models, us role modeling that to younger women, that they can see that you don't have to perform femininity. And one of the problems, as we've been discussing, is that there is a real push for you either have to perform femininity by using pronouns, which essentially is a performance of femininity. If you say your pronouns, if you have got pronouns, and if you if you do reject the the whole gender um, sort of ideology by not performing femininity, sometimes you get gently pushed out of your job, and like, like Sheila says, you won't wouldn't be able to be a newsreader in Britain if you're not performing femininity by wearing revealing clothes and high heels. So it is it, you know it will be at a price that we reject femininity, but I think it's an incredibly powerful opportunity for us to undermine transgenderism and to reject patriarchy. There is a lot in the WDI statement that um, that ties into what all three of you talked about, um, about performing uh, performing gender and how, how this relates to, um, to domination and, and subordination. I wanted to read specifically one paragraph that I think really relates um, from our statement. Um, if we only focus on preventing people from performing the wrong gender based on their sex, we will lose on both fronts. We will fail to stop the oppression of all women and girls, including lesbians, and we will fail to eliminate transgenderism. Because if the system of male supremacy insists that all women and girls must be feminine and heterosexual, then some women and girls will find their sexual status to be intolerable, and they will seek to escape from their sex as they always have. Um, so that I think that kind of sums up how we have to get to the root of um, eliminating these these stereotypes from from the bottom up and not not allow people to think that it'll be it'll be better if the girls just start acting like like girls again you know i'm a scientist and the best thing would be you know a controlled experiment well we can't do that but the closest i know to it is that i mean i experienced a time in the late 60s and in the 70s um and a place new york city in the village in manhattan um, where there were cohesive, separate um, uh, women's, a lot of lesbians, but not exclusively, women's and, and gay male communities. If you were there, you got to see what happens in terms of sexuality um, when men have no women to constrain them and when women are completely free of male influences. Straight men would, would come into this environment and they really envied the way the gay men were having sex. Top, bottom roles, S&M before it was unleashed to the general public as, as BDSM, having sex is ejaculating at least once every day, more than once a day when possible. And each sex act um, would only take a few minutes with men consistently making themselves freely available for sex with other men. No expectation or desire for affection or gentleness. Straight men wanted being with women to be like what gay men were doing. The lesbians and straight men who were, uh, straight women who were among us were polar opposites in every way. And straight, the straight women were envious and longingly wished that being with men was like what the lesbians were doing together. So, of course, gay male sexuality was going to become the standard for all sexuality because that's what men, gay or straight, want sex to be like. And first it was heterosex that was poisoned. Women, women used to be the restraining factor you know, up to a point in what was considered acceptable in straight sex. No BJs, no anal, certainly no BDSM. But now women who partner with men have no alternative and they don't even realize that they've been groomed into accepting purely male sexuality as the norm. Even more tragic, I mean, 
you know, for me as a lesbian is, is a terrible influence that male sexuality has had on lesbians. Young lesbians take for granted the kind of aggression, role-playing, et cetera, that has seeped in from male sexuality. It was a, it was a huge chasm. And, and you know, unless you, unless you saw it, you don't realize it. Um, Sheila did a good book in Unpacking Queer Politics and talking about how that happened. I mean, I went through a lot of events going, what's wrong with this? Um, but but that is the, you know, that is, is kind of the crux of um, of gender is that um, the acceptable gender, um, the acceptable sex role stereotypes were gleaned from male sexuality, not just men being men, but from male sexuality um, and everything about relationships between men and women, whether it was just, you know, men and women in relationships or, or men out in the world with women employees or, you know, or, or shop customers or something. Um, was was all devolved onto the gender roles, the sexual expectations of male sexuality. I've noticed is that with the um, uh, drag queen story time, what seems to be happening, or, or I get the feeling that drag queens are, and so men are meant to be the teachers of femininity. So women, they've decided that we were not teaching our daughters well enough properly and schools weren't, how to be feminine. So we've got this rollout of drag queen story time and drag race or whatever on television. So we're, we're now, women are being taught how to be feminine, which fits exactly what you've just said, through men and, and men's sexuality. And what, one thing that shocked me recently is a, a woman I know, or a, there were a few women together, they were talking about something and then they suddenly started imitating drag queens and it was they were sort of shyly doing it but thinking it was hilarious fun it was sort of naughty but great that they were brave enough to say the extreme extremely misogynistic anti-women things that that the drag queens were saying and i sort of thought wow they've they've picked this up and they think the role models have told them so, yeah, that, that's really horrifying. It does seem that there are quite a few women involved in the discussion who actually very much reject the things that we've been saying today and are actually quite angry about them. And I think perhaps one of the things that this shows us is the extent, unfortunately, to which women are actually constructed to believe that femininity is natural and that they've, or, or, or indeed that they've perhaps chosen all of these things, but the way that women's minds are constructed, the male, the mind bindings have worked. And I, I mean, I don't know any other way of explaining why women would become very cross and think that this is something we should not discuss, that we should actually, the rejection of femininity is naughty, it's not something we should do and it's not something we should discuss. So I, I think it's interesting to try and work out why that would be the case because these women are feminists. They're on our side, you know, they're in our camp. There's no question, but they're very much rejecting. But the other thing that I wanted to say was for women who want to reject femininity, where is the possibility? The whole society is constructed around it. Pornography is constructed around it. Everything that's on the telly, all the films, the culture is constructed around sexualized, very highly sexualized femininity. That is all that's out there. Um, and that makes me think of something that I often say, but maybe controversial, which is, for instance, that teachers in schools should not be permitted to wear the costume of femininity because they need to be role models for the girls and boys that they are teaching. 
they need to be showing that women can be free, that women can have freedom of movement, freedom of sitting, freedom of everything. If nobody's there to model it for girls, no women at all, anywhere in the culture, and certainly not in their schools. I've seen on television headmistresses in high-heeled shoes. Can you imagine that? That is so cruel, so vicious towards girls that there would be headmistresses wearing high-heeled shoes, suggesting that this kind of torture is actually something that girls should emulate. So we actually desperately need role models. We need just something else in the culture, and there really isn't anything else in the culture right now. Just my own experience, which might fit in with some of the women in the chats who who are feminist and or, you know, really agree with a lot of what WDI feminist question time comes up with, but wear sort of very feminine clothes or perform various bits of femininity is I've quite often in my life uh, performed femininity and I have done it quite often because I thought it would help me get a job. And I've it's slightly out of fear that or, or maybe, you know, just thinking I won't get away with it. I just need to look normal. I need to fit in. I don't if they if they found out what I really think, which they'll see if I don't perform femininity, they won't give me a job. And um, then when the times when I've done less performance of femininity, it has been scary to do it because I've thought, well, I'm going to get in trouble for doing this. I'm going to, people are going to turn on me. So I, I think that might be a thing. Well, that's my own experiences. I've been nervous about stopping performing femininity. The other thing is it possibly could be a bit of an addiction, a bit like um, once you do it, you're just addicted to it. Yeah, no, that, that's definitely been my experience too, that I, I feel like I'm taken seriously at work more the more that I perform femininity and then it's kind of a, a habit and it's hard to break. Um, and then to the point about uh, role models, I think the most of the female role models I um, I can think of who I see as strong leaders, they're that they're seen as leaders and taken seriously to the extent that they are capable of being like as brazen as as men and kind of um, embodying the the worst um, some of the worst masculine stereotypes and I I don't really see that as a good as a good role model either um, so there's those are some of the issues I see but women who perform femininity uh, I find in the workplace often they are they were performing for the patriarchy so they're doing it to themselves it's like sisters are doing it to themselves they're saying look I'm a really true to the patriarchy my first allegiance is the patriarchy look I'm doing the femininity I'm wearing these crippling high heels for myself and I'm role modeling it to the children that's or you know to other people young women um there there you are and then they get really taken very seriously I think there's a lot of pressure on women to do it it, it is it is a lot of pressure. I mean, I, you know, I don't have them on today, but I have earrings. I have lots of earrings. I got my ears pierced when I was, I don't know, 16, like a lot of girls do. Um, and my partner, who I met when I was 18 and was with for a long time, got me earrings as gifts. So I have, and, you know, she, she passed away, but I have all the earrings she gave me. So aside from the fact that it's it has, you know, personal significance to me, um, I know at work that I'm perceived differently when I wear earrings. Um, than when I don't. Um, and, you know, we're not talking about the fact, I mean, we know um, that women are perceived differently, um, that we succeed in ways that, you know, 
um, that we wouldn't if we didn't perform at least some aspects of femininity. The trick is, is if you, um, is if a woman gets to the, gets to a point where she's the manager um, and can relax, you know, those standards for herself and for all the women who work, you know, who, who she supervises or who work for her, um, that is, that is a something we can do. That is a concrete something we can do. Um, and, you know, it, and it may not change the whole world right away, but it sure will change um, the, uh, the atmosphere and the culture of that, you know, that group that she, that she manages or supervises. And then if another woman manager um, sees it and sees, wow, these women are doing great and, they're, you know, they're not performing femininity, it, it just, you know, it, it passes on it. It is one thing that we can do. There's a thing in the chat here um, from Julia Long that says, I think I was taken more seriously for not performing femininity because I took myself more seriously. And that's an interesting thing. And that's, you know, very optimistic. And I think I, I found that as well, that I was terrified of cutting off my long dyed hair and stopping wearing makeup, etc., etc. And when I did it, I thought, oh, I'm just going to get the sack. And then I didn't get the sack. And actually, I got quite a lot more respect. And I think it is. It's that thing like, oh, she respects herself. She's going she's going to she has she's going to take this space. She's not she's not submissive. So I think there are there's a there's a win as well. Not always, obviously, you might, but I that I I, I think Julia's point is is a good one. That taking yourself seriously, that's again, that's really culturally infused. I mean, you know, when I talked about uh, you know, you're you're born a boy. And everything from day one is like, expect to succeed, you know, do whatever you can to get your way, be confident, you got this. All of that um, is perceived of as, you know, traditionally manly behavior. Um, and it isn't. It's just it's just something that you can, a way that you can bring up your child um, that, you know, expect to succeed, um, but without making them jerks about it. Could I just go back to yeah. the point I was making before, which is about why so many women are finding this issue of femininity difficult now. Uh, if we think about the 1970s, when so many, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of us throughout the Western world gave up the practices of femininity, uh, it, it, it was easy because there was a movement. So there were so many doing it. There were thousands and thousands of you know, young women giving up all of this stuff. So the critique was out there and it was possible to do it. And we were all criticizing it. That's not true now. We've got very, very, very serious, vicious enforcement of femininity now in a way that we didn't have then. And there was a unisex model in fashion then you know unisex was okay actually there were there were men in the 60s in particular with with long hair which is you know something extraordinary which of course isn't happening now so i think it's just that now we've been in an absolute iron fist of femininity and masculinity and so questioning it now just seems like something extraordinary incredibly radical over the top. It was just ordinary in the 1970s. Go to a feminist conference of 3,000 women and they all looked fairly similar. You know, not some women had long skirts, it's fair to say, and there were some women with long hair, but mostly we looked similar, whether heterosexual or lesbian. But there isn't that background now. So what we're saying here seems to be like, you know, shooting an arrow um, to the moon, it's just something so extraordinary, something so peculiar. But we've got to start talking about it, otherwise it's never going to get ordinary. It's never going to be ordinary for women to give, girls to give this stuff up. 
I think also, I mean, there's a question in the chat from Cara Dansky saying, are panellists trying to police women's dress and use of makeup? And I would say it's not really policing. It's more encouraging and making the logical connections in my mind that, you know, as I when I thought about it, as I have often in my life, um, uh, you you sort of think, oh yeah, this is actually this is a very powerful thing that I can actually do. Like, there are lots of things we can't really change, but one of the reasons it's such a good thing to think about and talk about and promote is that we can. A lot of us can do it, even if it's just perform a bit less femininity. But rejecting femininity is so such a strong, potent thing to do that I think that's one of the reasons we wanted to discuss this is to sort of bring it into the arena. And also uh, it, it, because of transgenderism being based upon that, that, that if you perform femininity, maybe you've got this gender identity. Um, it's 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 it, it, we're fighting the struggle. I think we'll be better at fighting the struggle, but I don't think it's really policing people. It's more encouraging women to think about it. In the nineteen seventies and subsequently, black women have actually created a politics out of not having to iron their hair use terrible straightening treatments that are dangerous, not having to whiten their skin. It's a politics. I think everybody understands that those practices come from racism and it's a politics. And I've never seen the argument that that's about policing women and those discussions should not happen. So we're talking about the politics of appearance, which is politically constructed. And we have to be able to discuss politics. Yeah, I'm not against discussion, but all I'm saying is that when when something like rankles and it's just like, oh, you're policing me. It's like, just just start with just thinking, just start, start the discussion before you, you know, before you even jump into it saying, by gosh, um, why? Where did where did you get this idea from? Where did it come from? Um, and maybe that's part of the discussion as well. 